So let's begin reading Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, so Abram went, and the Lord, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go from the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord and Abraham's journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's word, and let's bow in prayer and thank him for it. Father in heaven, we thank you again for another Sunday in your house with our Bibles open and seated next to one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, would you please make much of your word so that we understand it and can obey it. Well, thank you for this. We ask you in your precious name. Amen. Well, I thought I'd, I'd start out with a question. Sometimes that's good to do, uh, just to get our heads thinking in order to digest what I do believe to be the main point of the first nine verses of the 12th chapter of Genesis. We've had our break. Uh, we, we, we stopped studying um, somewhere about the beginning of December, and we started the series somewhere around Labor Day. Uh, but the, the question to think through is, when was the last time... You made a promise. And have you kept it? Uh, was it a big promise? Was it a small promise? I know this time of year, looking into New Year's, there are these things we call New Year's resolutions. That's basically a promise to ourself. I don't know. Maybe it could involve making a promise to someone else. I promise I won't do that anymore next year. Um, but a promise, what does it mean? And is it important? Is it is it? Is it a good thing to be a man of or a woman of one's word? Is it okay to ever break a promise? Should we try not to break promises? Uh, should we not promise as much so as not to get ourselves into a situation where we should have known better and should not have promised in the first place? Um, you could think through this from the perspective of your childhood. Did it matter to you as you grew up that people kept promises? I know as a parent, it didn't take long before I realized, boy, you just can't off the cuff promise your kid something. They expect you to keep it, and they'll remind you that you keep it. They'll remember if it was a year out while you've long forgotten it. Um, they're a big deal. They, they help us uh, in our framing and understanding of realities, we grow up. There's some people that are trustworthy and there's some people that are not. But 
Do these things have an impact on our life? Does the concept of a promise or integrity, rather, shape the way we look at life or reality? So we're, we're right on the edge of a new year. We've marked off another Christmas facing a new year tomorrow. We're back in the book of Genesis in chapter 12. And we just read where God not only promises to make Abraham, at this point Abram, the father of a, of a multitude, and then thereby blessing the nations of the world as a nation. As far as the Bible goes, there aren't many promises bigger than this one. This is the first one. Uh, there's the promise not long ago in Genesis, I won't destroy the world with a flood anymore. But as far as starting to unravel the mystery that we read in 3.15, where the, the snake crusher is going to destroy the, the tempter from the garden and then restore uh, a relationship with humanity, this is the beginning of that long story. Choosing one man to be a representative of a whole nation through which God will give his plan of salvation to the world. It'll take millennia to unfold. It'll take a lot of understanding and teaching to make sense of it all. But this is where it starts. This is a big promise. Now, a promise in the pages of Scripture, and I think it'll, it'll be worth the few minutes it takes to think through what a promise is, who's making the promise, who keeps promises, and who doesn't keep promises. But from the pages of Scripture, a promise falls under the category of grace, at least the promises God makes. Remember when we start, started in Genesis chapter 1 and we talked about how this world and everything in it is not necessary to God because God existed before the world existed, which means God didn't need the world because he was doing all right before it ever was. He chose by grace a gift to make this world and make you and I. The world isn't necessary. You and I are not necessary to God's existence or his holiness. So he just made it because he wanted to. The same is true with promises. He doesn't have to make them to us. He chooses to make them to us. And he always keeps the promises that he makes. But we need to look at it as grace. Uh, it's, it's not uh, law. It's not simply the way things are. Though it does offer uh, order and structure to reality. As Christians, we live our lives based on the foundation of the promises that God gives us. But as far as uh, what a promise is, here's a good working definition that I think might help us think through it better. A promise is a personal undertaking that rests on the integrity and authority of the one making the promise. Say it one more time. It's a personal, that's important, undertaking that rests or is guaranteed on the integrity and authority of the one making the promise. Integrity and authority are the important pieces. They, they matter or it falls apart. First of all, the integrity to keep the promise. And then second of all, the authority to be able to actually make good on it. I mean, if you're promising something you can't make good on, then you shouldn't make that promise to start with. It doesn't even make sense. If I told each of you, come back next week, each of you get a million dollars. You're supposed to laugh at that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't have a million dollars. 
or much of a fraction of a million dollars, for me to promise you a million dollars for coming back next week would be uh, absurd. So I wouldn't have the authority to make good on it. So I shouldn't even make it. But what if I had enough money to do that? Then it would be on my integrity to make good on it if you did, so that I could keep the promise. And it has to be a person to do this. Um, The God of the Bible has both the integrity and the authority to make and keep all of his promises. And as such, his promises are the very backbone of the Bible and the gospel at that. But think of it in those personal terms. Only a personal God can make a promise. Has, Has anything other than a person ever promised you anything? It takes a person to make a promise. Energy can't promise you anything. You know, uh, I heard, what was it, this past Tuesday, California coast got some of the biggest waves it's had in about five years. Lots of energy, crazy energy. If you could harness those Pacific waves, you could power California. But that energy is not a promise. Uh, The weather's not a promise. Nature's not a promise. I mean, you can set your clock to the way the solar system revolves, but it's still not a person. You can't thank it for keeping its promise. It's just doing what it's always done until it doesn't, right? The same is true with the sun, the moon, the stars. They're charts, they're books that'll tell you they'll promise you stuff. They don't promise you anything. They're not people. So if we take the thought even a step further... If a promise is something personal, if a promise requires integrity and authority, what if we thought of this universe, and from a biblical perspective, we think of the universe in which God makes and keeps promises, but wouldn't that be fundamentally different than something else, like a universe where there's no such thing as a God? Or let's say it's a universe that has gods, but the gods don't keep promises. They might make them, but they don't keep them. That'd be kind of like, you know, Greek mythology. But which would you rather, live in a universe where the the author made it and promises certain things that give us stability, expectations, that the scientific laws will continue to operate as they have? Because really, if we don't have that, then we're really on our own. And much of Genesis, these studies, it's one or the other. You choose. Would you rather live in a world where the sun has been the center of the solar system, the moon, the planets go around it, but who knows, one day they may decide to just stop? All our plans could change. I mean, what does hold it together? And if... if, If the universe in which God makes and keeps promises is different than one where that's not the case, in a world without the kind of God as presented in the Bible, reality has no necessary stability because nothing guarantees or underwrites the way things are. Again, we talk about laws of nature, but how do you talk about laws without a lawgiver? We call them laws of nature. Why? Because back when science got started... Most of the scientists believed in a creator that wrote the laws that govern the earth. But now, if there's no God, why in the world would we even call it a law? Because who's keeping up with it and who punishes it if it's not kept? It's just really this random thing that 
Works out like Goldilocks' story. A little closer to the sun, we'd burn up. A little further away, we'd freeze to death. But it just works, and we're really glad it does. But where's your stability? Where's your anchor? Where's your hope? Uh, Who knows? There's nothing to hang it on. So the laws of science have been a constant since scientists have observed them, but to assert their infallibility, like it'll always be the way it's always been, would require an exhaustive knowledge about the whole universe, which we certainly don't have, or testimony from someone who does have exhaustive knowledge of the universe, who can guarantee its predictability, or else we're just hoping it stays the same way. There's no way we could ever expect to expect such a thing. So, all that to say this, and this is the basis we turn back to Genesis 12. As Christians who believe our Bibles, our sense of the world, our ability to plan, even our experience of time, all hangs on the hook of God's promises kept. And it all starts, as far as mankind is concerned, in earnest in the passage we just read. So let's look at it one more time. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Uh, If I'm Abram, I've got lots of questions. There's not a lot of details there. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is different than Tower of Babel where they wanted to make a name for themselves, right? So, um, do you remember when we were talking about Noah and God choosing Noah out of all the earth that he said had gone way downhill such that a flood's needed to reset the whole thing? He's going to save eight people. And he's going to start with a man named Noah. And we talked about how 99% of the world's religions are based on, do you remember when I, I called it an inverted U? Uh, use this in... in Math classes I never understood. It's called a parabola. And then there's an inverted U. But the the upside down U is the idea of I'm a human being on this planet. I want something from the God somewhere out there. So I'll offer up something or a new leaf or a promise in hopes that he'll see me have favor on my offer and give me down something that I wanted, long life or wisdom or whatever else. That's the way most religions work, but not this one. This one's the other way around. It's the U-shape, where God just says out of nowhere, um, Noah, I'm going to bless you and your family and save you from imminent doom. Build an ark, and it'll all be fine. So Noah is happy to believe the word of God and gives back worship. Thank you. I'll follow you. I believe what you say. Which is the more shocking surprise, that God would just pick someone out of a group and give them what they don't deserve? Or this person on the planet with not much to go by other than maybe a dream, maybe a voice? We're not given details as to how he worked it out with Noah, but Noah believed him, and Noah was saved. That's the same thing going on here. He picks Abram out of nowhere. Abram, says in other passages, was serving other gods at the moment like everybody else on the planet was doing. But because God has favor on Abram, Abraham chooses to believe him and worships him as a result. So Abram wasn't seeking this favor. God doesn't ask Abram's permission before he promises him descendants that number the sands on the seashore. Again, I don't know that I'd have to 
I ask your permission before I promise to give you that million dollars I was joking about a while ago. Most of you would probably say, sure, that'd be great. But with this, I want you to leave your family, leave your land, go somewhere you don't know where you're going yet, and I'll make you a, a big deal, as it were. And he says, okay. And he does it. That's what we read. And he went. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, took his family, all his possessions, and did it. Now, Abram isn't always good or even wise. Next week, we're going to see him do something unwise. Same as we saw Noah do something unwise. Poor decisions on both their parts. After God chose them, favored them, and they believed what God said. So it's not a perfect track record that's going to get you interaction with with God, is it? And it doesn't mean that we've got to be perfect because these were imperfect men that he chose. Um, Just as Noah believed the word he received from God and built an ark, Abraham believed the word he heard from God and acted on it and moved his family to a place he didn't know where he was going. If we were to fast forward, and sometimes I do this just for the sake of clarity, we'll get to this in time, but in chapter 15... A uh, very popular verse of Scripture that's used in the New Testament, uh, theologically speaking, but it's verse 6 of chapter 15. And he, this is in reference to Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted, that'd be God counted it, what? The believing to him, that'd be Abram, as righteousness. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So is Abram righteous? No, he's like any of the rest of us. Makes mistakes. We're going to watch him do one next week. But he's counted as righteous. He's not righteous, but on paper, in heaven, with God in heaven, he's right with him. Even though since the Garden of Eden, man has been wrong with God. Based on what? What is it required? What's required for God to look on him and count him righteous? His belief. That's it, that he takes God's word, trusts it, and acts on it. Almost looks like a story. You scratch your head and say, this doesn't work in the world I live in. I don't know of anybody who just promises me something, and then I just follow them to the ends of the earth. That's how it happens. Now, if we went to the New Testament, this would be Romans 4. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, I'm going to read it if you just want to listen. Or if you want to make a little note and decide uh, that that Genesis 15, 6 is found in Romans 4. But Paul is saying, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? So he's referring to him now as Father Abraham after his name changed from Abram. Our forefather according to the flesh. So this is just Abraham in his body, his flesh, like any of the rest of us, a human being. For if Abraham was justified, that, that means found righteous, by works... So if, if Abraham was really a perfect guy, with a perfect track record, he really was truly righteous, which the world has never seen before, but let's just say he did it. He has something to boast about, and sure he would. He'd worked hard, and he was good his whole life. All A's on his report card. Always emptied the trash the right way. Never kicked the cat or anybody else. But look what he says. He has something to boast about, but not before God. If Abraham was righteous of his own doing, he'd be able to boast among men, but he'd never be able to boast among 
God's or the true God because God made him. He's still a creature and God's still God. So at the end of the day, even if, if Abraham's righteous, God's still God and Abraham's not. So it would only take him so far. He keeps reading here, uh, for what does the scripture say? And here's Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, if he was working for his righteousness, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. That's obvious, simple to understand. You get a job application, you work, you, you work for the week, whatever was required of you. And the boss man comes, say, Friday and says, uh, Merry Christmas, here's your paycheck. No, it's not a gift. You owe it to him. He works for you, you owe him money. So it's, it's back and forth. And if we were righteous, God would owe us his recognition, right? But since no one's worked for the righteousness, they can't. Then if you get righteousness, it has to be a gift. It can't be your paycheck. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, says Paul, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what you've got is Paul the Apostle uh, wrote, what, 13 books of the New Testament? Theological uh, treatises like the book of Romans to explain what salvation is. And he's going all the way back to Genesis fifteen six to say here's how it works. You can't be righteous, none of us are, but if you believe the word of God, take it at face value, act on it, worship him as God, then God will count you as righteous, even though you're not. That's what we're learning. It's grace. It's a promise that God's going to keep, that he doesn't have to promise in the first place. So he wasn't righteous, but he's counted righteous or credited with righteousness. Why? Because he believed what God had said. Now, this is just day one, uh, first contact with Abraham, doing whatever Abraham was doing in Haran before he took everything he had and went to the promised land that he doesn't even know where it is or what it's called. By the time you get to Genesis 17, it really gets interesting because there's probably some time between here, maybe uh, you know, almost 25 years or so. Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That's different than sinless. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 17. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Well, God's talking to him. That's what people do when that happens in the Bible. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So he's saying it again, but years later. Now, what if somebody made you a promise, and then you never heard a word about it for 25 years, and it comes back, but the promise has to do with you being the father of a multitude, but you're 99 years old. It was, it was going to be a task to have a son at 75, now you're 99. When his wife hears about it, she's going to just think that's the best joke she's heard in a long time. That's what the word Isaac means, laughter. He's a hoot, <laughs> right? How do you keep on believing? You know, is that the, if we're making a movie, is that the background soundtrack, Don't Stop Believing, Abraham? The whole world's 
waiting for you to be found righteous, even though you don't deserve it. Keep trusting. And then when Isaac's born, God's going to ask him to sacrifice his only son? We'll, we'll need our own Sunday just to figure out why in the world God would ask any human being to kill another human being for sacrifice. There's a point to it. So verses like this and um, the faith that's required to digest verses like this, these verses are often described technically. And when I say technically about the Bible, we're talking about theologically. Uh, This is by the scholars described as prophetic perfect tense. He's talking about something in the future, but in the present, having to do with prophecy and expectation of a, of a promise fulfilled. Okay? Now, the author that I've been using quite a bit for this whole series through Genesis so far, Christopher Watkin, he says of the prophetic perfect tense, he likes to call it divine promissory tense. Do you know what a promissory note is? It's a legal, technical token. Not like a contract, but kind of an expectation of terms. You might see them, it's it's usually financial, have to do with, say, an insurance policy. This is what you can expect for your, your premiums. It's a promissory note. When God says this to Abraham, and this is another time, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. What you've got is, an, is a man living in time and space. He's growing older. He has a past and there's a present, even though it's just for the moment. Even the word moment that I just said is in the past. I might say it in the future like saying the word moment again. But your present is really just a hair's breadth, isn't it? I mean, most of today is in the past up to this moment, but we got some still left, Right? But we're stuck with watches and clocks. I put this up here so I know what I'm doing and don't go too far. But with God, there's no time. If he's decided to count Abram as righteous, the Bible actually tells us that was determined before the foundation of the world. Not before Abraham was born, but before there was a world he would be born into. So it's kind of like taking a a linear roll of of history and rolling it up like a scroll and some of those dates that are much later line up with dates that were much earlier as if they were the same thing. Your head can start to hurt watching some of these sci-fi things where we're trying our best to take what, you know, Einstein wrote about relativity, right? Uh, E equals McTwo, is that what it was? That was a joke. E equals mc2, mc squared, theory of relativity and all that stuff where the more the gravity, the more the time stretches or constricts. How in the world can God say that this is done when it hasn't happened yet? That is the promissory tense from a God who never goes back on his promises. If he said it at all, it's not going to happen. It's already happened. If he's chosen you for him for life, maybe you haven't gotten there yet as far as the point of repenting of your sins and falling on his grace. But what did his father tell him? What did he tell his father? All that you gave me, none has been lost. Now that makes your head hurt because you're, it's eternity. 
which is timeless, over against temporal, which has everything to do with time. But surely Abraham is not right with God, counted righteous, because he always trusts God, because we're going to read sometimes he doesn't, but because he acts on the belief that God keeps his promises. Abraham is going to be, is the father of this nation because God promised that it would be. So I think the, the thing to do here in this passage is just to switch it over into the form of a question and, and, and then drop it in our own laps. What has God promised you or I in the pages of Scripture? What is presented to us in the divine promissory tense? That's stuff that Abraham goes for us too, but we could go through the New Testament and talk about Abraham. We could talk about um, the, the just shall live by faith and on and on. We could stay here a month of Sundays or we could just boil it all down, use the world's most recognized verse from the Scripture. It should suffice for this just fine and dandy. How does it go? For God so loved the world, that's truth, that He gave His only Son, which He did, that whoever, so out from the world there there are the whoever who believe in him and if they do should not perish but have eternal life. What worked for Noah, what worked for Abraham, what worked for Moses, what works for anybody under the sun. If you believe God and you trust him to keep his promises, that is counted to you for the thing which you precisely do not have righteousness and it's your ticket to heaven back to the garden back before everything went wrong when we sinned against God now he goes on makes it even more clear for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him so the saving mechanism is on him rather than us there will be a cost associated with counting unrighteous people righteous and it will be the death of the righteous son of God. Verse 18, whoever, same word, believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Well, that goes all the way back to the garden where the curse of sin is pronounced on disobedience. And then to be specific, the author of John's gospel says, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So you're condemned by default because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, taking God's word to be true, God gives you his son's righteousness in exchange for your sins. That is a promise. Now, if you really want to make your head hurt, all of this is planned before the foundation of the world, right? So which is it? Condemned or not condemned? If in a moment in time... I choose to believe the word of God and it's counted to me for righteousness. Is time important or is timelessness important? Yeah. This is called a mystery. Is it on you or is it on him? The Bible says it's on him, but he asks us to respond. We must respond. You must repent and believe. Just that he did this doesn't count for you. What about... Everybody but Noah and his family when the rains descended and the floods fell, winds blew, kind of like beating on that house foolish man built. 
and it was all gone. You know? There's going to be some faith necessary on our part. And frankly, search the world and all its religions to find a better deal. You, a creature of the dirt, rose up in disobedience against the God of the universe. Who told you before you ever did that you you would die the day you took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? But instead of doing that, um, no, I'll kill my son in exactly that fashion and you go free as long as you believe that it happened. That's the craziest promise that the world has ever heard. And it's drawn on the bank of what? God's integrity and his authority. Not only will he keep the promise, but he can keep the promise. One person, a God, to us as people. Not force of nature, not energy, none of that. A living, breathing person that gave you the life you're living and breathing right now. So, I think in this new year, we probably ought to spend a little bit of time thinking about God's promises. And we've got Genesis to help us do it. We've gotten started today. I think a lot of us collect promises in the Bible like, you know, some people collect little charms for a bracelet or trading cards for sports or whatever, you know. Um, this verse right here promises me that if I have a bad day, I can say this and it might be better. You know, like serenity prayer or something. Sometimes I feel like the hordes of hell chase me even faster once I start praying. I don't think God gave us the promises to enhance our lives such that we wouldn't need him as much. I think all the promises in the Bible are to bring glory to his own name. Who gets the glory for him saving the unrighteous, counting righteous the unrighteous? God does. They're for him. They make him bigger. And that's one thing that's, that, that's quite refreshing about this passage we read. There's one thing we didn't cover down toward the end. It happens twice in two different places as Abram is journeying with all his stuff, trusting God's word to be true. It says, and he built an altar. And he worshipped him. And wherever we see God's people in the Old Testament, that's what they're doing. In the New Testament, they're building churches. And they come together and they worship him there. And sing songs like we did. Joy to the world. And all these others to keep reminding ourselves, he keeps his promises. We don't, but he does. And we're going to conclude this service with a song we sang last year. David's going to lead us here in a moment. Um, But it's all glory be to Christ. What do you say to the one who keeps his promises always? A glaring contrast with us. Our whole foundation that the sun will come up tomorrow is not by chance. It's by God's decree that we wake up saved tomorrow and don't just walk away from the whole thing. Not only did he save us, but he keeps us saved. If he left it up to us and it was on us to do it, maybe we could ruin it too. I'm glad for those passages that tell me that this is God's business. But I'm also terrified at the passages that say, you must believe. You must decide. I hope you believe. You've heard the word of God today. 
in song and in Scripture. Just about everybody in America has one of these. Read it. See for yourself. Come and see whether or not this can be trusted. Spend a year on it if necessary. But if any of what was said today is true, wouldn't you want to know that the guy who made it all will let you live with him forever for nothing other than just believing that he's true? Could that be true? You'll have to find out. It's as easy as belief. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the last Sunday of the year. Lord, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for Thanksgiving before that. Lord, we thank you for the prospect of a new year. And Lord, should we hear that trumpet and you return to take those who belong to you home with you forever before 2024 ever arrives. Lord, we'll praise your name. But Lord, if we must wait as you, it is said, tarry, Lord, may we be about the business for which you died, telling others that you love the world so much that you gave your Son that whosoever believeth shall not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for keeping your promise. We ask this in your name. Amen.